Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Anjali Grochet. Last week, we talked about the newest spider heroes to join the Marvel Universe in the anthology Marvel's Voices Spider-Verse number one. And today, we're going to go back in time, almost 30 years. It's 1994, it's after school, and I, like many of my friends, rushed to the TV to watch Spider-Man the Animated Series. Not only was the show iconic, but it was one of the most diverse animated shows on TV at the time. And for many of us, our entry point into the Marvel Universe. What we didn't know is that the man central to making the show was also the first black animation writer turned showrunner, John Simper. John is a writer, producer, and story editor. And man, he has worked on so many of our favorite animated shows like Clifford the Big Red Dog, The Smurfs, The Snorks, Kid and Play, Rugrats, The Jetsons, The Incredible Hulk, and so much more. Plus comics and movies like Kiki's Delivery Service and Class Act. I could spend this entire episode just listing his credits. But we are here to talk about Spider-Man the Animated Series. John helped develop the show, was a story editor and producer. I honestly could go on and on about how cool John is, but let's just listen to my conversation with him instead. Yo, hi. I'm so excited that you're here. Oh, thank you. If you were just meeting someone for the first time, how would you introduce yourself? Well, you know, it's the logline that I have on my Facebook page, which is, I wrote and produced a lot of the cartoons you grew up with. That's how I introduced myself. You are a person of color. You're a black man who works in animation, and you have worked in animation since the time when you were the only one in the room. Yeah. Talk to me about why animation and how you got started. Well, I knew I wanted to be involved in animation from when I was a kid, I saw a movie called Sleeping Beauty, Walt Disney's Sleeping Beauty, which coincidentally, one of the first great black animators worked on, uh, Floyd Norman. It completely overwhelmed me. You have to realize this is an animated film that was the first widescreen animated film. And the notion that this gigantic thing happening on the movie screen started with someone drawing on a piece of paper. Uh, To me, that was just magic in every sense of the word. So if you had asked me when I was six or seven what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said I wanted to make cartoons. If there's one characteristic about me that's perhaps weirdly (laughs) true is that I'm, I'm consistent. I'm basically the same person now that I was when I was six. And I have a lot of the same interests and my dedication through the years to wanting to be involved in animation eventually blossomed into wanting to simply be involved in film. And around about my teenage years, I became very interested in cinema and I started watching lots of different interesting movies. And I still realized that animation was the total art form, total cinematic art form in that Every frame was synthesized, was the creation of someone. With a film, you simply photograph what's there, but in animation, you had to design it, you had to draw it. So for me, it still was one of the most powerful art forms ever. Wow. 
And you were also at the time a comic book fan. So how did you get into comic books? Well, when I was in my early teens, I had a one-hour commute to get to my high school. I went to the oldest private high school in the United States, the Roxbury Latin School. I was one of the first, I was one of three first black students at Roxbury Latin. And I had a one-hour commute every morning and a one-hour commute every evening on the subway. And back in those days, there were kiosks in all the subways, and you could buy comic books and magazines, and you could read them during your trip. One day, I was looking at the rack, and there were these interesting characters. I think the first time I saw Fantastic Four or Spider-Man, I think I just sort of ignored it, because up until then, I had been a Superman, Batman, Casper the Friendly Ghost, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. But eventually, around about the third issue of each, I thought, well, what is this? Let me check this out. And I started buying Marvel Comics, and I started realizing that I thoroughly enjoyed what they were doing. I was roughly the same age as Peter Parker at that particular moment, so Spider-Man was my favorite comic book. There was this fellow named Stan Lee, and I started really paying attention to everything that he was writing. There was this artist named Jack Kirby. There was another one named Steve Ditko. All these, all these names that Stan brought to the masthead of the first page, I started to uh, appreciate what they were doing and really believing that this was an amazing art form. So that's how the comic book thing started for me. It started, I really got going for me with Marvel Comics. Prior to that, I had read Superman and Batman, and I had grown up. I think the first comic book I ever had was uh, Dennis the Menace. <laughs> and I had always enjoyed the medium. I think it's a really great medium for kids, and it teaches them how to read and teaches them to understand story. But everything I learned about story structure, I pretty much learned from Stan and reading Marvel Comics. And that was a major milestone for me, was getting hooked on Marvel Comics. Dealing with the fact that you actually were part of an integration of a school, how do you feel that impacted you and the way you tell stories or the stories that you related to? That's a really good question. I haven't even ever been asked that question before. Um, I grew up at an interesting time. You know, a lot of a lot of being the first black to do this, that, and the other is timing. And so I grew up in a time when the country was really working hard and clumsily stumbling and bumbling their way toward recognizing people of color. You know, it it was very ham-fisted, and a lot of it was a little awkward. But there was a genuine desire to get young black students into schools that previously had not really accepted them with open arms. You know, I remember watching George Wallace standing in front of the school and denying entrance to the little black girl. I watched that on TV. So I was aware of what was going on, and I was aware kind of of the climate. I grew up in Roxbury, Massachusetts. I grew up in a world where there were a lot of black people and there were a lot of white people. And transitioning to Roxbury Latin was only slightly different for me because Now I was in 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 an environment that had a lot of rich white kids, and I had never been in quite that environment before. That, by the way, is where I learned how to swear, because those rich white boys knew how to swear, and that's when I started swearing. 
Um, so I don't know. I've always been pretty observant. I watch people. I pay attention to how they are and what they do. And I guess I started formulating ideas about the differences between people, the similarities between people. My school was very small, and I was with those boys for a full six years of my life, which was a huge chunk of my life at that time. It was one-third of my life by the time we graduated. So a lot of those guys really ended up somewhat being like my brothers, both the black and the white students. So I, I, had, I grew up in a very mixed environment, and I think that that has benefited me greatly throughout my career because, you know, I can't say that I'm comfortable around white people. I don't know that I'm comfortable around anybody, quite frankly. But, but that's, that's my own personality quirk. But I don't, I, I, you know, I've always been able to navigate my way through the world pretty effectively. And um, I think because I came up during that era and had the experience of, of being the first, that has benefited me throughout my career. I don't even know, you know, being the first, I don't even know that I felt it all that much. I knew that I was, but I don't know that I felt the full, the full weight of it. The only time I experienced any kind of prejudice at Roxbury Latin, there was a teacher there, he was a French teacher, and he seemed to keep singling me out for behavior that was characteristic of all the kids, but I was the one that would get singled out a lot. And years later, my school used to have an event at the Symphony Hall in Boston where they would school would all go to this, we, we have this thing called the Boston Pops, and the school would all go to the Boston Pops. And by that time, he had left Roxbury Latin, and he'd gone on, quite frighteningly, he had gone on to become the headmaster of another private school. And um, when he saw me, you know, he said, so what are you up to? And I was a senior at that time, and I said, well, I've gotten uh, early acceptance into Harvard. And he turned to me, and he kind of sneered, and he said, well, I guess they had to fill out their quota somehow. So, yeah, I'm no stranger to a certain amount of prejudice and uh, bad behavior. Fortunately, at Roxbury Latin, I didn't encounter much of that. You went to Harvard. Then you end up, you wind up in the animation space. Where does this all start for you in the industry? And in particularly at a time where there's not a lot of people of color behind where the sausage is getting made at all. Almost none. I'm the first black animation writer, period. There might have been a black story man who worked at some animation company somewhere doing one thing. But in terms of a person who identifies as a writer for their profession and has done really only that, I'm the first one. And you have to understand that in 1979, 1980, when I got into the animation business, the animation business was a ghetto at that time. It really was its own ghetto in that nobody really wanted to be in it. It was not considered a legitimate part of the entertainment industry. And there was very little cachet involved in being involved with cartoons. Now, I got in it because I wanted to be in it. A, I wanted a job. I was coming from Boston. I wanted to be able to stay in LA. I needed a job. But B, I really did want to be in the animation industry. I just kept plugging away. And the animation industry at that particular moment was in a lot of turmoil because a lot of the old guys were sort of retiring and dying off. And they were, with great reluctance, they were having to bring new blood in, which 
they didn't really want to do. The old guys were hanging on for dear life, but the fact of the matter was there wasn't enough of them to fuel the amount of production that there was. So they had to start bringing in some new blood. And in the middle of all that chaos, I was able to kind of slip in. Now, how did I get in? The short version is I came out here. I uh, worked for a fellow who was doing an investment counseling firm research project about the animation business. I had worked for him in Boston when he did a TV show for PBS called The Japanese Film. This gets very convoluted. I apologize. <laughs> but when he found out that I'd come to L.A., he said, well, I want you to work on this project with me. So literally my third day in L.A., I was meeting the heads of animation at Disney, meeting people like Chuck Jones. I mean, really, it was a great head start, meeting uh, Lou Scheimer over at Filmation, which was a huge company at that time meeting Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, who had their own company, Ruby Spears. Joe and Ken had created Scooby-Doo. Literally, within the first two weeks, I went to a recording session at Hanna-Barbera, where we were recording an episode of The Flintstones. So it was just, just, just this huge, wonderful wonderland was presented before me during the course of doing this research project. After the project was done, so we did that for about two months, and then it was get a job time, get a real job. So I went back to the heads of a couple of the companies that I thought I had kind of clicked with. I went to Lou Scheimer, and he gave me an opportunity to train as a storyboard artist. And then I went to uh, Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, and um, Ken gave me an opportunity to interview for an editorial job. I ended up going with the editorial job, and uh, I, I joined the editorial department film editing at uh, Ruby Spears. And then segued eventually over to, and this is a long story, very short, but I segued, I got into the union, the uh, Editors Guild fairly quickly, which was great. And then I segued over to um, Hanna-Barbera, and I was working editorial in the basement at Hanna-Barbera. From there, I went to, because you get, everything's seasonal, and you get laid off every season, and you get brought back. But I went to Ripley's Believe It or Not, I was working at Ripley's Believe It or Not, a TV show. And then I got brought by one of the editors there over to Universal because he was going to be editing a film called DC Cab with Mr. T and uh, Gary Busey and a whole bunch of people. And I ended up in editorial. So I was working at Universal every day, which was great because it was only about five minutes away from where I lived. While that was happening, my significant other, Cynthia Friedlobe, came home one day and she said, I've been fired. And I said, Really? And she says, well, no, I wasn't fired. I was kind of let go. The way that they used to, the way that Margaret Lesh uh, over at Hanna-Barbera used to uh, let people go was she would make them a writer and they would, <laughs> they would bomb out, you know, spectacularly. They'd flame out and then, then she'd be rid of them without any guilt. So Cynthia came home one day and said, you know, I was made a writer, so I'm not going to do it. And I said, no, 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 let's do it. I had already, I had taken the writing class in Hanna-Barbera, and I'd gotten actually pretty good marks, but, you know, I'm film editing during the day, so I said, well, I know, I had sat with almost all the producers at Hanna-Barbera, I knew them all really well, and I knew what a cartoon was, what a Hanna-Barbera cartoon was, and I knew all the network people, because I had sat with them in the editorial department, so I had met Judy Price and Jenny Trias, and I knew all those people, so I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll write the cartoons, and you can represent us, you know, as, as the team during the daytime. During the daytime, I will work at Universal and do my gig. And then at nighttime, I'll, I'll write up the cartoons. I'm not a very good typist, so I hand wrote everything. 
She's a brilliant typist, so she typed everything up and cleaned it up and all that kind of stuff. And that first year, we sold something like four cartoons, which was unheard of. The ABC decided that they really liked us. They were all Scoobies. I started out writing Scooby-Doo. And then Margaret said, well, who's this guy? She went to Cynthia one day and said, well, who's this guy, John Semper, that you're partnered with? And Cynthia said, well, he used to work in the basement. You know, all the producers know him and everything. And so she said, well, well tell him we want him here on staff. So I left DC Cab before it was finished. I am credited on the film. That's my first Hollywood credit as apprentice editor on DC Cab. But I left uh, DC Cab and I came over to Hanna-Barbera as a staff writer. I was on staff because we did so well. ABC started requesting us. Bless their heart. And that was it. And then once you were on staff at Hanna-Barbera, you had to work on everything. So if they needed a writer, it was a great gig. If they needed a writer on Scooby-Doo, they needed a writer on Smurfs. So I did that. I did Jetsons. I did everything that was going on in the house at that time. What's it like writing for these big animation studios with their own formulas? They know what they're looking for. And, and what do you look for in a writing team when you aren't starting from scratch, per se? I think one of the hardest things for any writer to grab hold of when they are brought onto a show freelance is the tone and pacing of that particular show. It's, it's a hard thing for a freelancer to get, and it's a hard thing for a, for a showrunner to convey. So as a freelancer, I think I got pretty good at matching the tone and pacing of whatever I was hired to do. As a showrunner, I was never terribly interested in whether anybody was a quote-unquote good writer or not, because... Mm. What I really wanted were people who had an open mind and people who were very pleasant to get along with. I always felt like my job was to convey to them how I wanted the show written. So you're always teaching. What I'm looking for is someone with whom I can communicate, who's bright, who clearly wants to write. The best example I can give you, there was a young writer that was recommended to me and his name was Jim Krieg. And he was recommended to me by the network guy that I was working with on, on Spider-Man. And he said, try him out. So I, you know, as a, as a favor to the network guy, I said, okay, we'll give him a try. So I gave him an assignment and Jim came back and the script was all wrong, which didn't surprise me. I took him, I said, let's go across the street. We had a park across the street from the building where we were. And I took him across the street and we sat down and I said, okay, look, I'm going to go through this script and I'm going to tell you everything that's wrong and then I want you to fix it. So we went through it, and I told him everything was wrong, everything. Now, when Jim tells the story today, he says, I had two choices. <laughs> I, could either, I could either tell this guy to go F himself, this guy meaning me, <laughs> or I could do what he's asking me to do. And Jim chose the latter. He went, he listened to all of my notes, and I thought to myself, there's a guy I can work with, because he listens to me and he absorbed the information and he did what I needed for him to do. Jim is now a showrunner. Actually, Jim is the producer in charge of all of those great Water Brothers animated features. And it's funny because once we were talking on the phone and he was complaining to me, he says, I understand it now. I understand what you were, what you were doing and how you feel. I, you just want people to do what they're told. <laughs> you don't want geniuses. You don't want egos. You don't, you know. No, nobody wants egos. 
But you do want to let other folks in the door. So, like, what does it mean to ensure you're not the only one? How does your mindset then change as you start being the person who can make the decisions, particularly being at a person of color who knows what it looks like when you're the only one in the building? Because the animation industry was its own sort of specialized, as I said before, ghetto, there really weren't that many people who wanted to be in it. And there were a lot of people who, when they were in it, thought that they were just biding their time, moving on to bigger and better things. I don't think a lot of people of color were trying to get into animation back in the day. They certainly didn't come my way. I think that the period of time after I did Static Shock until now is really the period of time when a lot of young people of color have been more interested in animation. So I didn't have a lot of opportunity to bring people of color as writers into the show. What I did do, though, was bring a lot of people of color as actors into the show. It goes without saying, Static Shock's cast was amazing. I, I've had amazing cast. I think Kid and Play was the first all-black voice cast show. Because when you go back to shows like Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids and everything, half the voice actors doing the black characters were white. But with Kid and Play, we had an all-black cast. And then when I did Spider-Man, I made it a point to make a lot of the black characters in Marvel Comics very prominent. When I did that show, I said, I'm going to totally recreate the experience I had when I discovered this character for a whole new generation. So... That was, for me, the fun of it. And, and I was going to make all the, uh, the black characters much more prominent. So we had Robbie Robertson. I did The Prowler first. I did um, Rocket Racer. All of the black characters had good backstories. And so, you know, they were all real three-dimensional characters. I put so many black characters in Spider-Man that we got nominated for an NAACP Image Award that year, which was unheard of. I'm sure people were scratching their heads as to why Spider-Man was being nominated for you know that award. Then I got to work with these amazing black actors like Roscoe Lee Brown, who was our voice of the Kingpin, a white character. I got to work with Brock Peters briefly, Rodney Salisbury, who is one of the great black voiceover artists of the industry. My favorite part of making cartoons, quite frankly, is working with the actors in the recording sessions. I was very pleased to see that when they chose to do Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, they took two of the characters that I believe I had brought to screen for the first time, Prowler and Tombstone, who were both prominent black sort of villain. Prowler wasn't really completely a villain. Uh, Tombstone was a villain. I have to give credit to Stan Lee because Stan brought black characters to comic books, period. As far as I was concerned, from my generation, the guy who did that was Stan. And he was also the guy who chose a black guy to be the showrunner for this flagship show, Spider-Man, the animated series. He chose me. Can you talk a little bit about that? When they do a show like Spider-Man, they're investing millions of dollars. So you have millions of dollars that rests on the shoulders of a showrunner. So you need somebody that has experience. By that time, I had already had at least a decade of showrunning experience in animation. So I knew the process. I understood the, uh, the network. I understood the writing process. I had known Stan for 10 years when he tapped me to run Spider-Man the Animated Series. I had met him at a company called Marvel Productions, which was really an animation outlet for um, Hasbro. 
and they did Transformers, they did GI Joe, they did My Little Pony. So that's that's where, you know when I started working for Marvel Productions, that's when I met Stan as a peer, and we became friends because I worshipped him. You know now I'm now I'm working with my childhood idol, the 16, 15 year old kid who bought a comic book off the kiosk on his way to junior high. I'm now working with that guy that I worshipped. I I don't know how you do right. it. You're like you're. <laughs> Do you know who you... Oh, yeah, my saga with Stan goes back even further. When I was at Harvard, he came and spoke one night. $15 I paid. It was one of the best nights of my life, seeing my hero on stage. Fast forward to years later, I'm now working at Marvel Productions, and I'm, you know, and I'm with him every day. And I told him, I said, Stan, if I had known I was going to be with you this much, I would have not spent the $15. But <laughs> we... We got along famously because I worshipped him. And, you know, everything I learned about writing, I learned from reading his comic books. I, I'm, not a, I'm not anyone who studied writing or anything like that. I've taken a course here and there. But I didn't graduate college with a degree in writing. Pretty much everything I've learned about pop culture writing started with my love for Marvel Comics. What is your degree in? Visual and Environmental Studies. And that department, which sits in a very lovely building designed by Le Corbusier, called Carpenter Center. That degree is mostly for people, or at least back when I graduated, it was mostly for people who wanted to go on and work in uh, architecture. And the little bit of film that went on, went on down in the basement, it was almost like they were embarrassed by it. But that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to play with cameras and make animation and do all that kind of stuff. So that's a whole, that's a whole other story. But writing was not something I ever really wanted to do. But when I got out here, I was flat out told that the only people who controlled the cartoon were the writers, not the storyboard artists, not anybody else. And that's a story, too. I mean, what happened was Bill Hanna realized that it was cheaper to have a writer write something and rewrite something and rewrite something than have an artist draw it and put it up on a storyboard. So he, you know, Bill Hanna was always about what was going to be cheap. <laughs> so as a Hanna-Barbera writer, you were trained to think visually and you were trained to write the script out scene by scene and pre-visualize everything. So that's my training. For you as a person who has been a producer, who's been a story editor, who's been a showrunner, how have you found making your teams diverse like i the word diverse is weird for me but inclusive right and that and not just inclusive on oh we've got people of color but also perspective you know lived experiences mm -hmm. skill sets you know what does that look like for you being in a leadership position it's funny you should ask because i am just starting a show right now so i am doing a show that was created by al roker called weather hunters which we are just at the very beginning of. PBS announced it, much to our shock, because usually when a show gets announced, it's already underway, but we actually are just getting started. But one of the desires on this show is that we will hire a lot of inclusive writers and writers of color, because it's a show about a black family and a young black girl who's in this family and Al Roker is basically a kind of a character. He's, his name is Al Hunter, and uh, he, you know, he's a weather forecaster and whatnot. 
For me, it just goes back to what it always goes back to for me. I'm looking for bright people who listen and will give me what I need and do what I want, but also who will get the spirit of the show and bring something to the table. You know, I'm looking forward to working with a lot of writers of color. That's the difference between the last time I ran a show, but now, now there are a lot of young writers of color who want to get into the business. We will open up the floodgates and see who comes running in and start uh, bringing in young writers who don't have many credits. And I will sort of, I would assume, be in something of a teaching position. I've lectured at a couple of universities. One of them was Ball State. So just before the pandemic, I, I went to Ball State and I did a lecture. And I was amazed and slightly appalled at the resources they had there. They had so much technology. They had sound stages. They had bigger sound stages than some studios here in Hollywood. <laughs> the one thing they had that I think is probably a little detrimental to students is they have choice. You can choose to do this. You can choose to do that. And teachers nurture you. They nurture you. That's a great thing. But what you have to realize, and the subject of my lecture was, don't expect that when you come to Hollywood. Don't expect to be nurtured. Because Hollywood is not a nurturing environment. It is a cutthroat environment. And so if people who are vying for your position can get rid of you, they will. That's the way it is. That's the nature of any kind of business where there's a big financial prize at the end is people are going to get very cutthroat and desperate and, and they're going to try to elbow you out of the way. Now this, there was one kid there, you know, who had already experienced this and he was very angry about the Hollywood experience. I'm very angry because I got on the set and they treated me like crap and blah, 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 blah. Well, that's a set. <laughs> you know, um, no one's going to nurture you. You don't expect to be nurtured because that's not how any of this works. So my situation will be, I will nurture up to a certain point, but somebody has to show me that they are excited about what they're doing and energetic about what they're doing and that they enjoy working with me. And I think those things are reasonable to expect. There is a unique power in being able to open those floodgates and being able to kind of understand the difference between stonewalling someone and throwing them into the deep end so that they can learn valuable lessons. What do you think you as a storyteller have been able to bring to the projects you've done, and what would you like to bring into projects that you do moving forward? To address one of the first things you said, throwing people in and, and letting them find their way, the best people I've ever worked for allowed me to do that. They gave me a great deal of support and then threw me in and said, go do it. So I'm going to give you three names. These are the best people I've ever worked for, for that reason, not because they're famous, but for that reason. One was uh, Stan who always believed in me in his own cranky, crotchety way and, you know, gave me a hard time all the time, but really um, gave me all the opportunities that enabled me to do some great things. The second was Jim Henson, who would just kind of give you the parameters and then say, okay, go off and do it. Okay, go off and do it. You know, I really enjoyed working with him. And then the third person that I sort of enjoyed working with well, I did enjoy working with him. I don't even know if he'd remember working with me, but it was George Lucas. I did a project up at Skywalker Ranch for the George Lucas Educational Foundation. And back in those days, that was George's main interest. So he was 
more interested in, in Glef than he was in anything else having to do with any, you know, Star Wars or anything. And so I and four other writers got like 100% of his time. And we would go into his office at 10 in the morning and come out at 6. And we would have lunch with him and we would have tea with him. You know, at a certain time, the tea cart would be rolled in and we would have tea. And he was another guy that was really a lot of fun and would give you a lot of leeway. Just go off and do the thing and, and have fun. The best people do that. The best people. The worst people are the ones who micromanage everything and second-guess themselves and micromanage you. And then when it doesn't turn out the way they want because they've stifled every creative aspect of what you're doing, then they fire you because it's all your fault. And there are plenty of those. <laughs> I try not to be that person. But I think it is important to give people creative space and let them find themselves. But you don't, you are not guaranteed that in Hollywood. So having said that, what have I brought to the table? I'm proudest of Spider-Man because there's a lot of me in that show. The whole way that it sh was shaped after episode 13 is pretty much me, for better or worse. There's some people love it. Some people hate it. For better or worse, it's me. Story-wise, visually, it's all Bob Richardson. I've had middle-aged men walk up to me at conventions and tell me that that show helped them become the person that they are. And that's a really cool thing. <laughs> I have a couple of super fans who literally, I mean, they, they say that the Peter Parker of that show helped guide them through life. And that's kind of the way it was with me and Stan and the Peter Parker in the comic book. So I understand that. And, and I'm very proud of that. You know, I like some other stuff I've done. Uh, I'm very proud of uh, Class Act, the kid and play movie. A lot of people still really laugh at that film, and I love making people laugh because I'm a very silly individual at heart, and I love doing comedy, and I love making people laugh. So I've never been to a screening of Class Act where people were not laughing out loud. To be able to have experiences like that, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful. And now, you know, I'm doing Zoom calls with Al Roker and, and the group of people that are putting all of this together, and, and that's pretty cool. So I, I, I love being on the front line of something really cool and having a lot and knowing that a lot of people are going to see it, you know? So I knew that a lot of people were going to see Spider-Man. It was the number one show in America. All the kids in, in America were watching it and quite a few kids around the world were watching it. I always joke that, uh, I was doing Spider-Man. Larry Houston was producing X-Men and for the period of time that both shows were on the air, Saturday morning was dominated by the product of a couple of black guys. Both Spider-Man, the animated series, and X-Men were the products of people of color, and they are literally two of the best animated shows ever. Well, thank you. I like to feel that we made our mark. I'm really excited that we were able to have you on the show to really just... Talk about your career and your work and your expertise and your insight. And I just, I really appreciate all your time. Thank you for having me on. This is, this has been great fun. Thank you. It is always a privilege talking to John, not just because he's brilliant, but he's just got so much insight and he really is one of the coolest nerds ever. Next week for our season finale, I am talking to a good friend and my co-author for the upcoming book, My Superhero is Black, John Jennings. I'm excited to talk to him about his work here at Marvel, but also 
inviting creators for his Megascope imprint at Abrams Comics Arts, co-creating events like the Black and Brown Comics Arts Festival and the Schomburg Center's Black Comic Book Festival, and most recently, writing Silver Surfer Ghostlight. Come back next week to hear our conversation. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Zachary Goldberg, and me, Angelique Rocher. Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Emily Godfrey. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina. 